Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Sharon Liu, a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. Today, our guest is Professor Robert Edwards, the Cahill Professor of Neurology and Physiology at UCSF. And I'm David Lipton, also a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. In this episode, we will talk about uptake of neurotransmitter into vesicles for release at the synapse, co-release of dopamine and glutamate, and how a young soul happily found his way to science. All this and more coming up. We're here with Dr. Robert Edwards, Cahill Professor of Neurology and Physiology at UCSF. Thank you for speaking with us today, Dr. Edwards. My pleasure. Okay, so first to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Like, where did yeah. you grow up, and how did you decide you wanted to become a scientist? Well, I, uh, I grew up in New York City. My parents were certainly not scientists. They were not doctors. Though my mother was a math major in college. So I'd say that was one little uh, science background. Actually, I, I went to this high school, which wasn't even very good in science, but it was good in math, and I always liked math. So that was something that I always enjoyed. And then I went to college, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I was going to be a math major, but I didn't like the uh, people who had, had a lot more math than me who were sleeping in the back of the class. Uh, so I, uh, I became interested in other things. And one of the things that was always interested me, I always liked history. And I particularly was interested, I took a bunch of courses in intellectual history, which is the history, it's, you know, it's not about wars and economies, and it's about, you know, people's thoughts and why people believe different things at different times. I was always fascinated why certain beliefs could be so uh, fully accepted by everyone at certain eras, and, and now we would consider them horrible and ridiculous, and, and now we've got other thoughts which they would probably think equally ridiculous. So, you know, why is it that we believe certain things, and how do these thoughts, how does this thinking evolve over the years? So, you know, and you, you, you take these courses and you start to realize, well, of course, you're not going to figure out anything by just, you know, doing what people have done before, which is, you know, document the changes and why they occur. And, of course, they're kind of social and cultural changes, bear, whereas, of course, what's really happening is at the level of the individual, their, their thinking evolves for various reasons. And so I just started thinking about, well, if you really wanted to understand things like this, you really need to kind of break it down and understand how the brain works. And then that was when I started to think about neuroscience. And I did take one neuroscience course when I was in college by a guy, a guy named uh, Bob Wyman, Robert Wyman, who was doing this a long time ago. He was doing which colleges? This was this was Yale. And um, he taught the neuroscience course, and he was a Drosophila person. He was interested in how synapses form. In a way, he was way ahead of his time. And I remember, you know, there's one idea he had, which I still think about today, which is that he says, well, you know, there's a lot of cells in, in the brain. And then if you think about the number of connections between all the cells, it becomes this ridiculous number. So really, the only way to solve this problem is to simplify it. And the way to simplify it is there's this much smaller number of genes you know, 10, 20,000, and so that's a much more manageable number, and if we can understand how those genes work, we'll maybe basically be able to predict a lot of what occurs on a larger scale with all those synapses and all those neurons. So I always yeah. thought there must be some simplifying principles 
in to figure out how the nervous system works. And that's what has guided me till today. So some of my genetics friends say, well, why didn't you work on genetics? Well, the point is not just the identification of the genes. The point is to figure out how they work. And so, yeah. you know, I mean, basically over the years, I, I know you're, you're also going to, you know, I, I have a clinical background too. And I really, as I said, I had, I had no guidance through most of my training. I remember when I was in college and I thought, well, maybe I would go to medical school. You know, someone said, well, you know, you'll probably ought to work in a lab if you want to do that. And they said, they said, I work over at the medical school. And I said, where is it? So I just really didn't know much. I stumbled into various things, probably not always, in many cases, not the greatest research situations. But I did get to sort of think for myself about things and think about what I wanted to do. And then I did go to medical school. And I always knew that I was a little bit different from most of the other medical students who really just wanted to, you know, get their black bag and, you know, set up practice somewhere and have a certain life. And yeah. I, I was more interested in other things. And I went to Johns Hopkins. And interestingly, there were several of my close friends then who were in medical school who also went into research. So serendipitously, anyway, so it was an interesting experience. And, I, and then I, I did neurology. And neurology is a very clinical specialty. But I, again, I was more interested in basic questions. And in neurology, you know, we have all these terrible diseases, which we really don't, you know, these days we have a little bit more treatment than we did many years ago. There's a little bit more treatment for stroke. There's a little bit more treatment for epilepsy and for headaches. But really, I mean, a lot of the terrible illnesses we don't have anything for, obviously. And all we have is palliative treatment. And so it was always the question of what people in neurology sometimes do is they kind of go into the clinical field and they kind of accept it as it is and maybe, you know, move it forward within that framework. But I really was trying, I was interested in the basic questions which cause these diseases because my feeling was that the only way we're really going to do anything about them is to get to the basic causes. So that's always yeah. guided my thinking about these things is to get to the root of problems. And so... My own research is pretty basic. Um, I mean, uh, I, I have a joint appointment in neurology and physiology, and uh, that's you know illustrates that. And I don't know. Yeah. I, go ahead. What prompted you to go to medical school? I mean, from yeah. this yeah. you know description of this yes. point of interest in yes. Um, it, from that neuroscience class and really getting into the right. genes. And it seems like you maybe had these two parallel tracks yeah. of interest in helping people in medicine. Is that the case? Well, I, yes, I was interested in medicine because I thought it was interesting and exciting yeah. and it's practical. And I liked all of that side of it very much. And then I thought, well, you can also make a living at it too. So I thought it, it's a good thing. But at the same time, there were various aspects of it that, well, and the other side is that I really just didn't know about research. I didn't know much about research. I mean, I did work in a lab a little bit, and I just didn't know. I mean, back then, there were barely any MD-PhD programs. There, Johns Hopkins, I think, had some MD-PhD students, but they didn't actually have a grant. So they, it was really way back in the infancy of these things, and I was just not that well educated and exposed. So I went to medical school, and I, and I, I enjoy, I still see a few patients, actually, and I enjoy seeing patients. Oh, wow. I do, actually, but it is time-consuming, and, you know, there's other things which are very demanding, you know, the research. So I have always enjoyed it, and I do enjoy helping people, but, you know, I mean, I feel that my biggest contribution is really going to be, you know, in terms of research. So... It's just I'm going to have a bigger impact with that. So that, that's kind of why I went to medical school. Partly ignorance, partly because yeah. it's interesting and some of the same, you know, it's practical. As I mentioned,
a medical student at Johns Hopkins, and um, they had an extremely good, this is quite a long time ago, but they had a really good neurology department that was extremely research-oriented. They were about the most research-oriented of any neurology department, and my, uh, I had some amazing attendings, uh, including you know when I was uh, uh, on the neurology ward, I had two attendings. One was a guy named Hugo Moser, who discovered a lot of inborn errors in uh, in, in uh, formation of uh, lipids and myelin, and then um, and the the other two weeks was Malin DeLong, who you know basically developed deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease. He was a systems neuroscientist, so I mean these were amazing people. And and when I was uh, in the first year of medical school, we had the the physiology ta- course was taught by Vernon Mountcastle who was also uh, an amazing person. So there were some, you know, really, it was medical school, but there were some great scientists who we were exposed to, and it was uh, it was quite an experience. So, and then I, you know, I wanted to, I was very interested in neurology, and um, I came to UCSF because it had a great neurology program. It was, in fact, at that point, really, it was very strong clinically, although it's a little bit the same today even there were some great scientists in the department too but they were not so clinically oriented as even the people at Johns Hopkins I'm talking about people like Howard Fields now his work on pain is a little bit more clinically related but the other person young person starting then was Stan Prusner and I you know got to know them both quite well and so you know here too there was a lot of exposure to great science even in neurology and then um, subsequently as well. So Very eventually cool. you started your own lab, yeah. and you have focused on mechanisms of neurotransmitter yeah. uptake into vesicles yeah. and vesicle yeah. recycling. Yeah. And so ves- just to give some background yeah. to our audience, yes. vesicles are essentially little spheres of membrane that have molecules of neurotransmitters loaded into them, mm-hmm. which are then released when the vesicle is fused with the membrane in response to an increase in calcium concentration. Right. So what did people know about yeah. synaptic vesicles and neurotransmitter release back then when you started yeah. your lab? I, I remember even when I was in college, I went to the library once, uh, just read about what was known about synapses. And basically, I remember looking at some, you know, staining of synapses. I don't even know what they were stained for, actually. But, you know, synapses mm-hmm. were little dots in light micrographs. And that's the idea. <laughs> they were just little dots. And maybe there was some yeah. EM of some vesicles and... You know, people were obviously, cats had discovered, you know, the quantal nature of synaptic transmission, but it essentially nothing was known. And I, I even remember when I was in college, too, I worked on denervation hypersensitivity at the neuromuscular junction. And I remember once, because I, I always liked biochemistry, and I remember coming yeah. to my advisor once and saying, you know, it would be really interesting to know the, the sequence of the amino acid sequence of the acetylcholine receptor. And I remember she looked at me and she said, why would you want to know that? And uh, <laughs> so we're talking of a long time ago, and uh, yeah. and so I mean I I was a resident and in, uh, in the 80s, and then I joined Bill Rudder's lab, and he is not a neuroscientist, but he's a really great scientist, he's a developmental biologist, he's interested in gene expression, and well, to some extent cell biology and, and mechanisms of enzyme action. So he had diverse interests, and it was a it was a great place to be a postdoc. I wanted to do something in the nervous system, so I worked on nerve growth factor. And I was particularly interested, you know, it was and still to a large extent is 
a, a factor that promotes the survival of cells, but I was particularly interested in the possibility that it could actually influence the type of synapses that were formed because it was made by yeah. the target, so it could be a retrograde signal. I mean, these are ideas that are obviously still around. So I became interested in that. But in the course of working on, I was thinking a lot about what would promote the formation of the nervous system. But then I realized when, in the course of doing some experiments that one of the assays I was using that you might be interested in development, but if you don't know how the nervous system works, it's very hard to understand how it develops. So I thought, well, okay, I have to, let's put aside the development and let's just see if we can figure out anything about how synapses actually work. And the one thing that came up was I was doing this assay with this mouse where I engineered NGF to a particular target tissue and I got hyperinnervation of the target and I wanted to quantify the hyperinnervation. And what I did is I yeah. used the uptake of norepinephrine. Well, this was through the plasma membrane neurotransmitter transporters, and I used that to qu as an uptake assay to quantify the extent of sympathetic hyperinnervation of this tissue. And then I thought to myself, hmm, nobody knows anything about the proteins that do any of these neurotransmitter transport activities, and so wouldn't it be interesting to do this? So I was, so that's how I got into it. And then at the beginning, again, I, I mean, everybody knew about the plasma membrane reuptake systems, you know, the site of SSRI action, cocaine, they all act on those. And the vesicle transporters were this sort of black box that were mysterious, and there were a lot fewer papers on it, and nobody knew much about it, and it was pretty mysterious. And, you know, I, I thought, well, first, nothing, nothing was known about any of these proteins, so that was... Let's see if we can find maybe one of the plasma membrane transporters, but I did not succeed at that. But in the course of those experiments, we, you know, these are old things. You, you, you know, you guys did a really good job, uh, you know, researching what I worked on. But some, one of the first things I did, which you might not know, is that we basically cloned the first one of these transporters by its ability to, to protect against the Parkinsonian toxin MPTP. So the vesicular monoamine transporter so MPV plus, which is the active metabolite of MPTP, which produces Parkinson's and you know yeah. these addicts who took it, that gets taken. The MPV plus gets taken up by the monoamine neurons and the dopamine neurons, and then it goes into mitochondria and, and does something that triggers apoptosis and the death of the cell. And what I realized is there was something odd. There were some cells which took up large amounts of the toxin, but were basically resistant to it. And there were other cells that didn't even have a mechanism to take up the toxin. They didn't have this transporter, but they were exquisitely sensitive to the toxin. So we basically transferred DNA from the resistant cells into the sensitive cells and looked for a gene that conferred resistance to MPP+, and that was the vesicular monoamine transporter. And the, basically the way it works is it, and we still don't completely understand it, but the idea is that VMAT pumps the MPP+, into vesicles, keeping it away from mitochondria. So that's that's how I got into all this business. So the MBP plus is this toxin that is toxic to the mitochondria, exactly. but it, it just gets taken out yes. of the vesicles, and so it gets pumped out of the cell that has exactly. Taken it so it's really it, and, and this is something we don't completely understand. And there's some interesting observations out there, which yet I mean, it's probably not just that it gets pumped into the vesicle, but just as you say, it's that the vesicle also cycles and then dumps it out again. It's probably the combination, it's both the trafficking and the okay. transport activity that do it. But, I mean, we tried fiddling around with it for a while. And, I mean, the idea was that VMAT would protect not against just MPP+, but that it would protect against dopamine toxicity. And dopamine is extremely toxic. And that's one of the 
over the mm-hmm. decades been one of the theories about Parkinson's disease is that dopamine is bad for cells, and of course these cells live with it, and it's turned out to be much more complicated mm-hmm. than that because these dopamine neurons probably have many mechanisms that protect them against their intrinsically toxic neurotransmitter. And the, tran- the vesicular yeah. transporter is one of them, but it's very hard, in other words, it's very hard to actually produce a model of toxicity based on, in dopamine neurons, based on the loss of VMAT or some other things. Although there is one guy who's, who's yeah. pursued it pretty hard over the years, he's carried the flag forward, looking at that he has a, a very, a knockdown of VMAT, where the levels of VMAT are extremely low, and these animals get degeneration at about a year and a half of age. Anyway. We could go on about some of these things, but that was how I got into both Parkinson's disease. Even though I'm a neurologist, that's how I actually became interested specifically in Parkinson's disease and in these transporters. So your lab continued to work on these transporters and finding genes that were responsible for the uptake of neurotransmitter into Mm -hmm. the vesicles. As you mentioned, it was known that neurotransmitter was recycled at the synapse, but how Mm -hmm. it actually got from the cytoplasm into the vesicles, these mechanisms were not worked out. And then in 2000, Mm -hmm. your lab published a science paper which identified a brain-specific sodium-dependent inorganic phosphate transporter Mm -hmm. um, as a protein which we now call VGLUT1, thanks to this paper, um, which for (laughs) vesicular glutamate Mm -hmm. transporter. So what was known about the process of glutamate getting into the synaptic vesicles to get them ready for release? I know there's a VTPase, VATPase, which creates a protein. Exactly. So what was known was, and I should add that around the same time we reported this, Reinhard Jan did as well, the protein had been identified Mm -hmm. before, but basically what we did is we reassigned its function. This is actually something that I've been thinking about a really long time, and we've come back to it a lot in the last few years, and this is the topic of the second half of my talk. So, but I, I'm happy to give you a preview because yeah. it, it's got a long history. I mean, yeah. the, the, the history, so it was known from the work of mostly of Reinhard Jan and another guy at University of Michigan, Tet Ueda. They did some beautiful work uh-huh. in the late 80s showing that synaptic vesicles from the brain would take up GABA and would take up glutamate, and they defined the properties of these transporters. And the vesicular glutamate transporter in particular had some very weird properties. And, and it's only gotten worse over the years. The number of functions ascribed to this protein <laughs> keeps going up. And it's really so. I mean, I would say that, uh, yeah, a little bit of a prelude is that, you know, some of the other transporters like the vesicular monamine transporter are what we would call sort of well-behaved transporters. In other words, their coupling of protons to neurotransmitter is very tight they seem to behave appropriately, mm-hmm. they produce the gradients that are predicted. It's all kind of as you basically predicted based on what we know about transporters. But the vesicular glutamate transporters are just bizarre. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I will go through all the ways in which they're bizarre, but it basically came to me, I might probably not mention this in the seminar because of the time, but I was at a Gordon conference, I don't know, in the, yeah, in the uh, 92, 93, something like that, and I sat next to an MD-PhD student from UT Southwestern, and he said, you know, we got this funny protein that seems to be important for glutamatergic transmission, and it looks like a transporter. It looks like a phosphate transporter. And he said, what do you think? And I said, I don't know. I have no idea. And I, he, you know, we, we, he told us the sequence. We got the sequence. We, we thought about it for a while. We said, well, what would a phosphate transporter have to do with the release of glutamate? And I, I could go through all the, you know, the various thinking that we had at the time, but 
the bottom line is in the end what we yeah. briefly what we thought is that there is an enzyme the enzyme that makes glutamate in the nerve terminal is known as the phosphate activated glutaminase converts glutamine to glutamate and so what we thought was that this transporter initially we thought this transporter would bring phosphate into the nerve terminal activate this enzyme because the enzyme was allosterically activated by phosphate hence its name the phosphate activated glutaminase that was its name and that would produce the glutamate that would get stored in vesicles. We thought, well, that's the case. So we, we raised the antibodies to this protein, and we found that the protein was on vesicles. Mm-hmm. And that was right. Not, not on the plasma on the, membrane, because it was a sodium-dependent transporter, membrane. supposed to be a sodium-dependent transporter, which should function on the plasma membrane. So then we came up with another version of the hypothesis, which was is that the vesicles would deliver the protein to the plasma membrane so that you could bring in the phosphate to replace the glutamate that had just left. So it was a mechanism to regulate phosphate uptake. But then we started to think about it some more. And other papers came out. So with one paper saying another member of the family, actually some other members of very closely related proteins were not actually phosphate transporters. They were transporters for organic anions. And that's when the bell started going off. We said nerve terminal, yeah. you know, glutamate, required for glutamate release, organic anion transporter. So that's when we did the experiments, which showed yeah. it was a vesicular glutamate transporter and had all the properties previously described. So we reassigned its function. So that was, we thought, the end of it. And I'm probably not going to get into this much in the, in the talk, but, you know, that was the end of the phosphate business. However, one of our friends and collaborators in Japan has subsequently published a whole series of papers on the functional reconstitution of purified transporters, what looks like very elegant work, where he has suggested, and I'm not sure I believe it, that the V-glutes are still phosphate transporters. And I'm not sure I believe it. But anyway, so that's this one of the other yeah. functions. So then can you describe, so once the this yes. V-ATPase, yes. which uses ATP yes. to make this um, high concentration of uh, protons inside right. the vesicles, right. how does the V-glute pull in yeah. a... So the mechanism, uh, the detailed... The, the detailed yeah. mechanism based on the structure is not really known. But what's known about the V-glutes, which makes them different from all the other vesicular neurotransmitter transporters, is that they are driven almost entirely by membrane potential. And mm-hmm. so all the others are basically proton exchangers, and I will talk about this in the talk because we think this is very important. The, the reason mm-hmm. protons are great for many reasons, they're, that you make big gradients with small numbers of them because pH 7 is 0.1 micromolar protons, and so you only have to move a few protons to make a big pH gradient. So that's yeah. why protons are great. But the others are the, the proton exchangers, this exchange mechanism is important for their activity because it restricts their activity to the vesicle. There not being any pH gradient across the plasma membrane. So when they get yeah. to the plasma membrane during exocytosis, they shouldn't work. But the V glutes are a problem because they're driven by membrane potential. So when they get to the plasma membrane, what's going to happen? They're going to keep on pumping glutamate. This is one thing that's fascinated us for years. I don't know what the significance of this is, but it's one thing they clearly have the potential to do, which is tonic release of glutamate, non-vesicular release of glutamate across plasma membrane. So this is something we've, you know, and we still don't really know what's going on with it, but it's one of the things that's motivated our work in this because there's always been this potential for that activity. And uh, and the other thing is that's very important about the vesicle is that the proton electrochemical gradient can be expressed either as a pH gradient or as a membrane potential. And so 
you know, for the other transmitters, they depend more on the pH gradient, and for the V-glutes, it's more on the membrane potential. But the reason why we're really interested in the regulation of this proton electrochemical gradient is this will determine the equilibrium to which the vesicle can fill. So, you know, I mean, a lot of people think that, you know, the vesicle just fills to the set amount predicted, you know, that it's supposed to have. But there is yeah. no amount it's supposed to have. The amount of transmitter in the vesicle actually can give you different postsynaptic responses because the receptors, even NMDA receptors, are not saturated at many synapses. So the amount of transmitter in the vesicle can be very important, is good, should be very important. And the focus in the past has always been how many of these transporters there are in a vesicle. But all that's going to do is affect the rate at which the transmitter can get in. And that could be very important. You know, we've become, in the last five or so years, particularly interested in the possibility that the thermodynamic equilibrium could be changed, which would change the amount that is put into the vesicle in the end. So, and I thought that that's more likely to be even more powerful a mechanism for regulation. So our whole interest in all of this is regulation. And it's just nothing is known about the regulation of these proteins. So, so you made that's, a distinction between pH and the electro... Uh, exactly. They're not the same thing, and they're regulated right. independently. In fact, if you get rid of one, the other one gets bigger. They're related to each other inversely. Because what so, happens and is... the, the yeah. pH is just the concentration of hydrogen, Proton. mm-hmm. of protons inside, so that, they're, you know, mm-hmm. by diffusion, the greater concentration of hydrogen will want to go to yeah. the... Uh, less concentration, yeah. but then that also creates a situation where you have a negatively charged environment outside relative to inside. And it's that difference, you yeah. charge difference, yeah. and not due to the chemical ion, that yeah. that's the main driver of the or glutamate. Or glutamate, yeah. exactly. And so we've been really interested in what regulates this. And, and this is really what we feel is at the heart of the co-release issue, because we're talking about co-release of transmitters which depend on different components of the gradient. And so when you put them together, you get actually, it's not that they interfere with each other, they actually synergize, because one of them uses up like the pH gradient, which enables the proton pump to make a bigger membrane potential. And then that helps to fill with the other transmitter. They're, they're mutually beneficial in a way, or they're, at least in principle they are, and experimentally that's what we found. You know, so th- these issues are intimately related to the questions of co-release. Well, we'll touch on that maybe a, yeah. a bit later for now. Yeah, so in addition to VGLU1, which you guys yeah. found first, there are other homologs like VGLU2 and VGLU3. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so how do these different VGLU yeah. proteins regulate the uptake yeah. of glutamine in different regions of the brain and yes. in different time points yeah. during development? Well, what we thought about this for a long time, based so when we cloned these, okay, I have to tell you a little bit, when we cloned these originally, we did show what their function was, which we were able to do by expressing them in PC12 cells, or, you know, neuroendocrine cell line. Then we would harvest huge numbers of cells and make the synaptic vesicles from these cells. Oh, God, it was very painful. I mean, and you just, <laughs> you can't really look at mutants. It was, so it was a very difficult thing for the vesicular monoamine transporter what I should say is that one is a high-affinity transporter. When we express it in HEK cells, CAS cells, any kind of garden-variety heterologous expression system, all you do is you take the cells, you sonicate Uh them, you spin down the nuclei, and you take all the gunk from the cytoplasm, and it takes up transmitter like crazy. So that's the vesicular monomine transporter. The problem is none of the others work like that. They're all terrible in the usual assay. 
So there's basically not been good assays for the function of these proteins, other than some of these original papers, and then Yoshi Moriyama in Japan, as I mentioned, he's, he's reconstituted many of them, and they have similar properties, and that's what we thought originally, too, that they had similar properties using what I think are pretty crude assays. But many years ago, we became interested, you know, I worked on transporters for a while now, uh, we stumbled across some transporters which happened to be at the plasma membrane, and we started to use biophysical tools to study them, measuring pH flux, proton flux measuring membrane potential in oocytes. And I have to say, you know, it takes when you start to do these experiments is when you start to appreciate them. And I thought, God, what we need to do for our vesicular transporters is come up with some nice biophysical assay like that, better than the old radioactive uptake of glutamate, for example, which is just pain. It works for synaptic vesicles, and everything else, it stinks. So mm-hmm. we really wanted to come up with better assays. And using the old assays, there was really no difference between the isoforms. But I can tell you now, with assays which we have finally begun to develop, there are some major differences between them which we did not know about before. And I don't know what, exactly, what the full extent of their physiological significance is, but it, I, we used to think that they were different, different mainly in their trafficking because they do have different interaction domains. Zigu-1 has some polyproline motifs which interacts with endophilin, for example, a protein involved in synaptic vesicle recycling. And the V-group 2 and 3 don't have those interactions, but the bottom line is that there's, there's not just the tracking that's different. There are functional differences, too. And this is what we would love to explore. That's kind of where we are, where we're at right now. I don't really know the answer to your question, but there are differences. <laughs> and we'd love to use these tools, the, you know, the electrophysiology in particular, to explore a lot of this further and to look at other vesicle proteins whose function remains similarly you know, poorly understood. One of the main themes in your lab, if not the main theme, of the loading of vesicles in the neurotransmitter, kind of switching gears slightly yeah. a little bit uh, yeah. to something you touched on earlier of co-release. Yeah. So you showed in the 2010 neuron paper that mm-hmm. dopamine and glutamate are co-released by mm-hmm. ETA dopamine neurons. Mm-hmm. So I remember reading that and just thinking it was really cool like mm-hmm. that, that there was this co-release. So what, mm-hmm. before the paper, what evidence was there or wasn't there that co-release happened uh, yeah. in the brain in vivo? And then what did this paper tell yeah. us? Yeah, we've had a really long-term productive collaboration with David Soltzer at Columbia University. And he, many years ago, he was not the first. There was somebody who did it with serotonin neurons before he did it with dopamine neurons. But they showed that in culture that he did this with Steve Rayport, also at Columbia. They showed that dopamine neurons and previously serotonin neurons would form glutamate synapses onto themselves in culture. And I think a lot of people dismiss this as just a culture artifact. You know, that's, well, you put them in culture, they de-differentiate or something and form glutamate synapses onto each other. But then this is one of the reasons we were really interested in identifying the Z-glutes, because they would provide definitive markers for true glutamate neurons. And then, you know, first we thought it was Z-glute 3, but it turns out, of course, that it's Z-glute 2 that is expressed in the dopamine neurons, and it's serotonin neurons that express Z-glute 3. So that was shown in vivo. So now we know that these neurons express these vesicular glutamate transporters in vivo. And then the next question after that was, do they actually release glutamate? And Steve Rayport had a, a preparation which extended from the midbrain into the ventral striatum, because the V-glute 2 is expressed in the VTA neurons, 
which rejected the ventral stratum. And he had shown that when he stimulated in the, the cell, near the cell bodies of origin, that he could get glutamatergic responses in medium spiny neurons in the stratum. And, but the responses were very small because, you know, it's a difficult preparation because the, you probably cut many of the fibers when you're making the slice, and it was tricky. Right. So, of course, later on, we did it with um, Antonella Banchi here where we express channel redoption in the dopamine neurons, and it doesn't matter whether we slice off the axons. We just stimulate the terminals, and you can clearly see glutamate responses. So, and, you know, at first I thought when we did some of these experiments that this was going to be an oddity, that there's just a few cells which do this co-release business. But, you know, yeah. as you know, I mean, it's like all over now. Bernardo Sabatini and others have shown many examples of it in other systems. And in serotonin neurons, I would even venture to say that the more, well, this is a little heretical, the glutamate is at least as important as the serotonin that is released yeah. from RAFE neurons. So, you know, this is extremely, more important than I would have ever even imagined. So, Yeah. And you mentioned earlier so that it's the there's a the gradient that's established the proton electro and electrochemical gradient yeah. both load dopamine and glutamate to the exact same vesicles. That is the idea. So what we showed now there is a little controversy about this. There's a woman at NIH, Maricela Morales, who has published a paper which suggested that the monoamines and the glutamate were stored in completely different vesicles. And actually we're interested in the possibility that they might not be exactly the same vesicles. And we yeah. do have a paper in Journal of Neuroscience and Culture where we looked at this question and we saw that in many places they co-localized, but in some places they were different. We didn't do the EM that she did and we didn't do it in vivo. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that in the striatum, there's a really strong VGLUT2 input from the thalamus. VGLUT1 input it comes from the cortex, VGLUT2 from the thalamus. And you've got this tiny little dopamine projection. With, well, I mean, it's big, but it has only a little bit of VGLUT2 coming from the dopamine neurons. So if you stain for VGLUT2 in the stratum, you see this massive thalamic input, which is, of course, in different cells than the, do than the dopamine neurons. And then the idea is to look for this little needle in the haystack, which is the VGLUT in the dopamine yeah. neurons, to see whether that is a different vesicle in those cells. And that's the part that's, you know... We still need to address, and we are investigating it more thoroughly. I think we need to do it more in vivo. We need to really look in the stratum, in those terminals, but focusing specifically on the dopamine terminals. What happened? You know, are they on different types of vesicles? And we are doing those experiments now. There isn't too much more to say about that right at the moment, but you know, it's a little bit of an ongoing controversy. The data that we feel is absolutely you know, very hard to argue with is we make synaptic vesicles from the stratum. And we show that the glutamate helps to fill the vesicles with dopamine. I don't know how that could be if they were on different vesicles. It's a biochemical preparation. It's not a cell. So they, this is a, and we did immunoisolation experiments as well. So to some extent, I think that they're on the same vesicles. But we are also interested in the possibility that some of them might actually be on different vesicles, which might actually regulate the way they store transmitters differently. And now it's even more complicated because the VMAT seems to also transport GABA into the same vesicles. So uh, we've got three <laughs> transmitters. That's the work of Bernardo Sabatini. So, uh, and Jun Ding, who's at, uh, who's at Stanford. So he was yeah. involved with that, some of that work. So it's, it's confusing. I mean, we're really interested in it from the cell biological perspective because we yeah. really would like to know whether there are more than one population of synaptic vesicle. 
I mean, right. this would be very... And we already know that there are different pools of synaptic vesicles based on many people's work over many years interested in transmitter release. You know, there's, the, of course, the readily releasable pool, there's the recycling pool, there's a resting pool of vesicles, and we're interested in the possibility that these transporters actually distribute differently to these different pools. So this all comes directly out of, like, the co-release business. We think that this all related, may all be related to each other. That's the idea. So, so that maybe there's, in different stages of the vesicle release, from going to the reserve pool to the dock yeah. pool, you bring in, you know, different... Uh, or the vesicles may intrinsically be different. You know, there is this hypothesis from Edgar Cavallale at UT Southwestern that the spontaneously released vesicles are a different pool from the ones that respond to stimulation. We had some data suggesting oh, okay. that they might have different V-snares in them. And so I, it, we already have some evidence that VMAT doesn't distribute to the same type in the same proportions to the recycling pool and to the resting pool that, for example, the V-glutes do. So there already are some differences. It's not black or white. It's not like all one or all the other, but there are clearly some differences, and these are things we're really interested in pursuing, which we are working on. Very cool. Interesting. And so in addition to neurotransmitter uptake, you also, your lab is also interested in vesicle sorting, focusing on the role of... Yes, so we've done, that's, that's what we're pursuing in relationship to co-release, actually. And we have some other ideas about things, too. There, we haven't had papers too much about that lately, but we have been working on one other thing, which is sort of a related question, which is we, I was interested for years. When I was a postdoc, I was next to Reg Kelly's lab. He was a famous cellular neurobiologist. He still is. He's still here, but he doesn't have a lab anymore. And they were interested in regulated secretion of proteins, of peptides. This is the large, dense core vesicles. And we found many years ago that VMAT, the vesicular monomene transporter in some of these cells will go very specifically to dense core vesicles. So again, about five or seven years ago, we set up a little genetic screen in mammalian cells looking for, actually that was in Drosophila cells, we did it by RNAi, and then we extended it to mammalian cells, looking for genes that were important, not for the exocytosis of dense core vesicles, but for the formation of dense core vesicles, and by extension, their ability to undergo regulated secretion. And so we identified some proteins involved with that. And this may also be very relevant for dopamine because dopamine is stored and all the monomines are stored in dense core vesicles as well as synaptic vesicles. And so you have two different types. We already know that there are two, at least two different types of vesicles that release monomines. So anyway, this is another line of investigation related to protein sorting. With that overview of your lab's research. We were just wondering, you know, you're um, speaking in a couple of days, if you can give us a quick preview of what you'll be speaking sure. about at Stanford. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, it's a lot of things that you brought up, which is a little bit of the background on co-release mm -hmm. and this proton, potassium proton exchange activity that we found on vesicles and what does it do for vesicle filling. And we became quite interested in around the time we were working on that and published that paper, mutations were found in some sodium proton exchangers in humans. One of them, NHE6, wow. mutations in NHE6 cause severe intellectual disability and lots of other problems. And mutations in NHE9 are more specific uh, for autism. So we became interested in looking at some of those mice, and uh, the first half we'll be talking about the NHE9 knockouts and what we learned about them and what it might tell us about autism. So that's, that's one little, uh. that's the first part. And then the second part is going back to the V-glutes 
going yeah. through some of the history I outlined and then what we've done recently to try to move things forward using electrophysiology, basically, and other biophysical tools to understand better how they work. And that's the second part. We really look forward to uh, hearing the talk. With that science part of the interview, we now have this one uh, fun, lighthearted, uh, rapid-fire section left. So I'll let Sharon ask yes. the first yes. question. All right. So the first okay. question is, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself during undergrad or med school and give yourself one piece of advice, what would you tell your younger self? <laughs> oh. Mm -hmm. oh, that is difficult. I mean, I certainly, when I was in college, I just didn't know much about, you know, if I'd had some good advice about where to go for labs and that sort of thing, that would have been very helpful. So somebody, you know, I, I guess I could have benefited from a mentor. On the other hand, I mean, I'm a little bit of the kind of person who, you know, got to figure it out for myself. Maybe that means, you know, you stumble along for a while. But uh, it was probably beneficial for me to mm. struggle and figure, try to figure thing out, things mm. out for myself. And that's probably, you know, been better, made me a better PI in the long run. But so I don't know. I, there are a lot of things that would change, but, you know, sometimes the way it was might have worked out for the best. Yeah, Who knows? So as a kid or even today, who is your hero, scientific or otherwise, and who do you most want to emulate? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, it's um, when I was a kid, a person who had a big influence in my life. This is something that's a little bit odd. It, I was my music teacher, mm -hmm. and I discovered this only, you know, in the last year or two. But I played the bassoon, and Tom Sudoff also played the bassoon. <laughs> And I had a music teacher who was the principal bassoonist of the New York Philharmonic, and I studied with him for years, and I was pretty serious about music, which I loved. And so he had a big influence in my life, not a teacher, I mean, not a, not a school teacher, not a scientist, but just he was a great musician, and he was, a, uh, he was just a very positive influence in my life. And my father was as well. I probably you know, didn't appreciate him as much because he was my <laughs> father, but... But he was also, uh, you know, a pretty upbeat and optimistic person. You know, and it's, it's odd you ask me these questions, so I can't separate them from my son is filling out applications for high school, and they asked him, you know, who his favorite, uh, who his role model is. And he said Richard Feynman. And, you know, of course, I introduced him to Richard Feynman, but I don't know if Richard Feynman is my, you know, role model. But, of course, you know, he's, he's, he's a great guy. But So, I mean, I don't know. Other than that, I, I would just say I had some great teachers, people like, you know, Malin DeLong, and there was another guy I knew in medical school, Dan Drachman, who basically discovered basically the first cause of an autoimmune disorder, yeah. uh, which is uh, myasthenia gravis. Yeah. So that was an amazing thing. He was another important person for me. I should also add my, my postdoc advisor, Bill Rudder, was also extremely influential. He's, one that, he's the one that really showed me what science was about when it came down to it. So I, yeah. I can't forget that. And now, this is a very different question. Have synthetic yes. vesicles ever appear in your dreams? <laughs> <laughs> I probably hallucinate about them at times, but not a, not in my dreams. <laughs> it's interesting. You dream about all kinds of crazy stuff, but uh, I don't know. Uh, we do we do fantasize about them, but uh, <laughs> not in the not in my I dreams that I, I can in, recall. We work in a aliens lab, and like I've definitely dreamed about aliens before. <laughs> That's why we came up with this question. <laughs> I see. Yeah, sure. Okay, sure. And one final I, I understand. Um, is if you could yeah. be a specific type of neurotransmitter transporter, which one would you want to be? 
Well, that's an easy one because the vesicular glutamate transporters are obviously <laughs> extremely important and they're extremely complicated and they're interesting. So that's the one I like the best. M- most but, rapid uh, answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're the least well-behaved. Okay, right. great. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. Oh, great. my pleasure. Thank you very much. You guys were great. talk on Thursday. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Neurotalk is a production of Neurot West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senior, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by Sharon Liu, Ada Yi, Luis Giam, Eddie Alberon, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, and myself, David Lipton. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk in our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.durywest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk. I'm Sharon Lee. And I'm David Lipton.